Well, it's my pleasure to be back here, and I want you to know that uh, I'm not a celebrity, but I am part of medical history, and you probably should know about that. In 1959, as I was starting my sophomore year of high school, as opposed to what the Wyzetta School District did, which was build a bigger high school, our district built a new high school. So many of us had to leave the old high school to go to the new high school. It was 1959, and we buried a time capsule to be opened in 50 years, which is now this fall, next month, at the homecoming of um, the football game with the rival. Um, the plan is to open that time capsule. There's a giant email going around because none of us can remember where we buried it. Some said, I think we buried it under that barbecue that we built. We raised money and some kid's father was a bricklayer and built us this barbecue. Somebody else said, no, we buried it out by the flagpole. Somebody else said, no, it's down by the snack bar at the football stadium. So this is the first recorded group Alzheimer's. (laughs) And I'm part of it. And I get to share that with you today. By the way, you probably know what Norwegian Alzheimer's is. That they forget everything but their grudges. Oh, a little hostile here, huh? A little hostile. Do you want to start? Hi, it's good to be here. I'm not a celebrity, but I'm part of... (laughs) It's very interesting to me. You heard the joke about me having Alzheimer's, but the Norwegians, you didn't hear that. I'm talking about blaming in the sermon. So anyway, you heard about the Irish Alzheimer's. They forget everything but their grudges. Ah, that's better than the Norwegians, isn't it? Yeah. At any rate, Kevin asked me if I would uh, speak on the subject of marriage. And in July, just a few weeks ago, Susan and I celebrated 42 years of marriage. And people say to me, Susan is such a wonderful person, always smiling, always happy, always joyful. And I say, that's because I'm good for her. (laughs) The Bible says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials and tribulations. So (laughs) living with me has just made her more joyful. Now, we sat down near our anniversary and talked. And it was a very serious moment because I'm 65. And I think about the fact that my father died at age 67. If I have my dad's mortality, I have two more years to live. But we talked about how we could be better to one another over the next few years of our lives. And so we made lists of things we would want each to improve on. And the top of her list was, don't interrupt me so much. Top of my list was, let me interrupt you more. 
But it was a very serious moment as we thought through how to be a better husband and be a better wife and be a better team in the years that God gives us together. And so I wanted to do something new as St. Kevin the Meyer, your beloved pastor, asked me to talk about marriage. And so I thought about marriage thinking about the future. And so this is just sort of sermon for me today. And if it helps you, fine. If not, I'm getting on an airplane in a couple hours. What do I care? But I found this cartoon the other day and I, I understand some of you old timers in the back can't read it, but it says we can't find a compromise between a life of quiet desperation and a life in the fast lane. And it seems to me that one of the big challenges of marriage is how do two people who come together who have different temperaments, uh, in some cases different lifestyles, different interests, how do they get together and work together as a team? Uh, Some of you remember that when we lived here, Susan went to the Minneapolis Institute of Art and started giving uh, tours at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. She now does it at the Phoenix Art Museum. And we've made a wonderful compromise. I don't go to the art museum. She doesn't come to the golf course. And it just works out well. And we give each other the freedom to be different instead of trying to make the other person different. But it's a very tough challenge. If you think about this in the context of the Lord, the Pharisees were trying to back Jesus up against the wall and trick him. So they said, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't it interesting? Jesus didn't say, God is so wonderful that we just automatically will love him. He had to say it as a commandment. This is the first commandment. This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. Seems to me to follow that logically then, that means that Jesus says that as a commandment because we don't have that as our natural bent. We don't love God with everything we got naturally. It has to be a commandment and then we have to evaluate our lives against that commandment. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her holy and spotless. So it seems to me if we don't love God naturally, but we have to do it out of a sense of commandment to make to use that commandment as a standard, then those of us who are men and are married or are thinking about marriage need to accept the fact that we won't love our wives naturally. We have to think about it as a commandment and evaluate ourselves against that commandment to say, am I loving my wife as Christ loved the church? Well, how do we love someone as we love ourselves? In John chapter 10, verse 10 Uh, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more fully. One of the translations says to the full. Another translation says that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. So Jesus was saying he came to earth so that you and I could know more about life. We could know more about God and we can enjoy God more than we enjoy anything else in life. So it seems to me then if part of love then is to help the other person be a better person, to help the other person enjoy enjoy life more. 
In John chapter 16, Jesus is now in the upper room with the disciples, giving them his final marching orders. In verse 7 of chapter 16, he says, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I go away. Obviously, it would have been painful for these men to realize that the one that they had followed for three years is now going away and they're on their own. But he says to them, it is for your good that I go away. And so it follows, does it not then, in the context of marriage then, that we make decisions sometimes that are painful decisions, but will make the other person better, or make our marriage better, or make us as a couple better. It follows then that love is making tough decisions that help other people grow. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others Better than yourself. Each of you should not look out to your, only your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In the context of marriage then, speaking to those of you who are men, it seems to me then that we need to ask ourselves the question, do I love my wife more than I love myself? If you're thinking about marriage or thinking what will marriage be like, do I consider my wife as more important than I consider myself? Except for this Sunday, while Susan and I are in Oregon this, this, this summer, uh, I'm speaking as a guest speaker at a Southern Baptist church. And I told the group last week that when I came to faith in Christ as a sophomore in college, I had to rethink some of my values about women. And I remember riding my bike down to 164th and Division Street to get a haircut it was always a crew cut back then. And back then you couldn't make an appointment. You just had to wait in line. And it seemed like there were always men there who were old enough to be my father. And they always talked about their wives and they always talked about other women in the most insulting and derogatory ways. It was absolutely and diametrically opposed to how I saw my father treating my mother. But nevertheless, I let those men affect me and affect some of my attitudes about women. And when I was a sophomore in college and came to faith in Christ, I realized that some of my attitudes about women were not consistent with what the Word of God said. And here Paul is saying that we're to consider others as more important than ourselves. Jesus says, quoting the Old Testament, we should leave our mother and father and cling to one another and become one flesh. Well, how do we live out that principle of one body? In Proverbs chapter 12, uh, verse 4, Solomon writes, A wife of noble character is her husband's crown. And yet what I find in our American culture oftentimes is that men don't talk about their wives as their crown. They talk about their job and they talk about their accomplishments. In fact, one of my uncles, who's now 80 years old, he's my father's remaining brother, uh, was a very successful school superintendent in Oregon, and he talks about the fact that he's the president of the used-to-be club. In other words, what he used to do and what he used to be. And that helped me understand that a lot of men today, when we get together, they don't talk about their families, they don't talk about their wives, they talk about what they do. It brings attention to themselves. And older men, now in retirement, talk about what they used to do in their job. They never talk about their wives. But Solomon says, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown. Uh, my father was the oldest of 11 children. 
And I asked my uncle, the one remaining, uh, how many times was your mother, how many times was my grandmother pregnant? And she was pregnant 17 times, 15 times in 17 years. Uh, My father never talked about my grandfather except to say to my brother and me, I hope you respect me more than I respect my father. This uncle told me that my father went to his father and confronted him on why my grandmother was always pregnant. And I wouldn't even tell you men in a locker room the insulting thing he said about my grandmother as to why she should be his chattel in bed. So when my grandmother died a few years ago and some of my aunts were going through her things, they found this poem. They don't know if she wrote it and meant to discard it. They don't know if she wrote it and meant for it to be found. Nobody knows. But let me read it to you. My Husband by Raina Bell Cope Vodder. Cope was her maiden name. Cope was my father's middle name. His name uh, was Vernon, my grandfather. He never says, I love you so, as I somehow thought he would. But if I ask, he says, you know I do, that's understood. He never says he likes my dress or likes the tune I'm playing. But if if I ask, he answers, yes, that goes without my saying. I ask him, will your love for me be always true and steady? He sighs and says so wearily, I told you that already. For better or for worse, and more the kind old parson chanted, I don't know which I took Vern for, but he took me for granted. Isn't that interesting? Somewhere along the line, my grandfather said that he became a follower of Christ. I remember him being a leader of sorts in the church, so he would say he was a Christian. But nothing you read in that poem written by my grandmother suggests that he was a follower of Christ. This uncle, for whom I have great respect, uh, refuses to talk to me about Christ today because of how he watched his father treat his mother, how he watched his grand, my grandfather treat my grandmother. So let's don't kid ourselves. It's just not not a matter of inviting Jesus Christ into our life and poof, everything changes. It's a matter of giving our lives to Christ daily and saying, continue your work in me. In the whole area of communication, there are two uh, psychologists out at Seattle Pacific University, which obviously would be in Seattle. Names are Les and Leslie Parrott. And they've written a book called Saving Your Marriage. It's printed by Zondervan. I commend it to you. In their study, they say that 90% of the people who say they have good marriages say they have excellent communication. And 54% of poor marriages have poor communication. So it follows then, doesn't it, doctors Parrott are saying to us, That part of a successful marriage means that we are in the process of learning how to communicate with one another. And then they list some harmful communications. Very interesting. They say one of the harmful things people do 
in marriage is they placate one another. And so the husband does something that's unkind or the wife says something that's unkind. And instead of being honest about the fact that what you did hurt me, we placate one another by saying, oh, that's all right. Just let it go. When deep inside we know it's wrong and we're not willing to be honest to say what you are doing is rude and it's unkind and it's unchristian. I said that the first thing on Susan's list was that I not interrupt her, but let me interrupt myself. Leave marriage for a moment to talk about the church. Not your church, but one of the things I find in the church today, wherever I go. We have a tendency, I think, in the American church to placate one another. And so people get unruly and people get disorderly and people get angry. And we placate them instead of saying, you're out of line. You're out of line with the word of God. Last year when I was here, I told you I had the privilege of returning to Eugene, Oregon, where I I, I never was a student at the University of Oregon, but I was enrolled there. So it was fun to go back to. Come on, you guys, are you not quicker than that? But one of the things they asked me to do was help them get from a council of 26 people to an elder board. Congregational rule. We did everything there that we did here years ago when Adam and Eve were still alive when we made that switch at Wyzetta. And there was a vote to have an experiment for a year with an elder board system. And at the end of the year, there was not a motion to make it permanent. Then they went back to the old system. 94.6% of the congregation voted to try the experiment. And that there was still one man who kept saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And so I said to him, you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong. You are out of the will of God, you're out of the will of God, you're out of the will of God. And these new elders said to me, how can you talk to him that way, talk to him that way, talk to him that way? And I said, because in month in the month of May, I'm going back to Arizona. You won't have me around. You live with it. I didn't say that. I said, you fellows, if you love this man, will quit placating him and poke him in the eye spiritually to say it's time for you to grow up and understand that God speaks through congregational votes. That's how this church was built 150 years ago in Eugene, Oregon. It's the way we're still doing it. And they took up that challenge and went to him and said, you are out of the will of God with your attitude. The second thing doctors, parents say is that oftentimes in marriage, we blame one another. So the wife comes to the husband and says, you're always irritable. Well, if you'd have dinner on time, then I wouldn't be irritable. See how I've just shifted the blame from myself to my wife. How I've shifted the blame from Myself to my husband. When I'm angry, you don't make me angry. You just bring the anger out of me. And one of the big things about being a follower of Jesus Christ is that we have to assume responsibility for who we are. I've been challenged the last few years by the fact that this whole issue of placating and blaming that goes on, not only in marriage, but in the church, is that when Jesus was in the upper room, He looked at Judas and said, Judas, do what you're going to do. He didn't placate Judas. He didn't say, oh, Judas, 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 hang around, please. I'll give you one more chance. He said, Judas, do what you're going to do. In Titus chapter 3, Paul says to Titus, warn a factious person twice 
and then boot them. In the Greek, it means ask them to leave. But what we often do in the church is we placate or we let them blame someone else. And I think that's one of the, the, the most disastrous, has most, most disastrous effect in marriage is when a man or a wife doesn't assume responsibility for their behavior, they blame their spouse. Thirdly, parents say that oftentimes we control. They actually use the word computer. Some people are like computers. They have no feelings. They have no emotions. They just respond. And fourthly, they say we distract. I do whatever I have to do to get my spouse off my back. I've reconnected with a college friend up in Oregon and Susan was with us the other day. And she said something that was very interesting that I didn't recognize. She, I'll call him Jack. His name's Jim, but I'll call him Jack. <laughs> Susan hates that, but what you can do, babe. Uh, she said, darling, did you notice that every time the subject gets serious... Jack cracks a joke. I'd never noticed that. Every time this conversation gets poignant and emotional and talking about some issue of life, he cracks a joke. He distracts. On the other hand, doctors parrots say there are helpful ways we communicate. First is to be warm, to be accepting and to be loving. To accept the fact that none of us have achieved perfection. All of us are still in the process of growing. And therefore, our spouse or the one we love should be helping us grow instead of getting impatient at us. They go on to say that we need to be genuine. To be honest with our faults. To accept the fact that only Jesus was perfect. Therefore, all of us are going to fail one another. All of us are going to be imperfect. And thirdly, they say that we need to have empathy. We need to understand our spouse. I remember when I was at a church I was consulting, I didn't know what to do, so I didn't do anything. Maybe I, maybe I was wrong. But this man said in a group setting of leaders in the church, my wife struggles with her weight. And I said to her, output needs to equal input. That's, that's real compassionate, isn't it? <laughs> Sound like my grandfather. Output needs to equal input. No sensitivity. No sensitivity to her age. No sensitivity to chemical change. Just talk to your wife like a computer. Well, something else when two people are in one body... And that is that they compel one another towards holiness. In Colossians chapter 4, 6, Paul writes, Let your conversation be always full of grace. Always be full of grace. I don't know if you've read the book called Unchristian. I'll, I'll put the title on the, on the screen in a moment. And the, the author is a man named Gary, a doctor, a man's name is David Kinneman. I know his brother, father, Gary Kinneman. He works for the Barna Institute and they spent a lot of money researching non-Christians in our country, asking them why they're not interested in the church today. And in some cases, why they're not interested in Christ because they can't see Christ for the church. 
Two of the things they say is that they find that those of us in the church are very judgmental. It's as though we're asking for born-again behavior before people are born again. And then second, they see us as hypocritical. We're talking about a, a life and a faith that we're not living. And then David Kinneman uh, quotes a woman with her permission. Let me read this to you. Now, I, I'll just warn you, I'm going to violate something I learned in speech class in high school. You're never supposed to read something more than 30 seconds long. But that teacher's long gone. He ain't going to give me an A or a B anyway. So, so this lady entitles this, this, this thing she writes, The State of My Soul. I struggle with condemning. I have done this since I can remember. When my husband and I were engaged, we planned our wedding in three months. One afternoon, we were sorting out the next 20 tasks to complete. He hadn't called the bakery about the cake and he still hadn't finished his guest list. With annoyance dripping out of every pore, I cut into him with all the shame and blame I could conjure up. How dare he drop the ball and ruin my afternoon. Now I would have to pick up after his incompetence. After my verbal assault, he sat quietly with disbelief and pain in his eyes. I expected he would scold me for my tirade, but he didn't. All he said was, Jonalyn, is that how you talk to yourself? I was silent and I was stunned. And what Paul says in Colossians is that we're to address everyone. Let every conversation be full of grace. John says of Jesus Christ, he was full of grace and truth. And this is how this, I assume, young man responded to this woman. All he said was, is that how you talk to yourself? I was silent and stunned. Then slowly I nodded and began to weep long and hard, realizing that this wasn't the good life, it wasn't the abundant life Jesus had offered. But it was the only way I knew to be a model Christian woman planning a model wedding. It was the first time someone took time to notice the person behind my judgmental words. He saw the state of my soul. He swallowed his own pain long enough to see that there was something self-destructive eating me. To get anything done right, to be holy, to stay pure, to walk the straight and narrow, I condemned myself into obedience. These were my inner demons. If you don't finish that, who do you think will? That wouldn't have happened if you had only worked harder. That's what you get when you don't do it right the first time. You deserve what you get. I was an expert at emotional self-flagellation. I think many of the judgmental people we know are trembling, guilty, and sick. I was. I couldn't extend grace because my own reserve was so low. What did I know of grace? Surely it was my middle name, but I really didn't need it. It was for those other people who slip up all the time. Dale, that's her husband, taught me that we cannot give out something we have never received. Christ didn't, she quotes from Romans now, Christ didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. God put his love on the line for us by offering his son and sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. Dale was the first person who saw my mess and refused to demand an instant cleanup party. He saw where I was, and he still married me not to rescue me, but to join me in this journey into abundant life. David Kinneman, Unchristian, page 203, Baker Books. I've sent this to the office. If you want it, they can email it to you.
The reason I have such respect for this woman and I've never met her is because she's honest. And as I thought about what she wrote there, it's obvious that she came to faith in Christ, but she left a whole lot of her life at the door and she refused to let Christ touch it. And that's what the non-Christian world is saying about us. If you take the time to read this book, Unchristian, they're saying they see us as hypocrites because we're talking about something that we're not living. And it seems to me that in marriage more than anywhere else, we need to be honest with our faults to say, this is who I am. You are the one with whom I want to spend the rest of my life. I need you to help me grow. Let's move on. Not only this, but in this body issue, the husband helps the wife and the wife helps the husband complete the task. I've been impressed in John chapter 17, 14. I've got the, I've got the wrong verse there. It's actually 17, 14, not 7. I have brought you the glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. At the end of Jesus' life, he could say to the Father in prayer, I've done everything you've given me to do. In Philippians 1.6, the Apostle Paul says, He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. So none of us have arrived. That's why if we're always irritable about the fact that our spouse is imperfect, then we're never going to be growing the way we need to be growing because we're all to be growing. We're to be helping one another grow. And then I think this, I feel, I think this as strongly as I think about anything. I really weary as I get older of men being derogatory about their wives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says, each man has his own gift from God. It's exactly the same word, gift, as is used to describe in the New Testament the gift of salvation. It's a free gift. In other words, I didn't deserve Susan. God gave her to me as a gift. I know some of you men. I can tell you, you all married way over your heads, the same way I did. We need to view our wives as gifts. Free gifts of grace. Well, by way of personal application, let me share this with you. Loving God and loving others is a commandment. Therefore, God expects us to be loving our spouses. Husbands, we are to love and serve, not dominate our wives. Marriage is a lifetime of work. If you don't believe me, just ask Susan, because she got her work cut out for her when she got me. And finally, this is the most fun part. Marriage is two ministers ministering to one another. Father, we're saddened to think that Non-Christians can't see you because of our inconsistencies. We thank you for David Kinnaman who's gutsy enough to write about what they discovered in that research. We thank you for doctors Les and Leslie Parrott who call us to account to ask us, are we communicating in a Christ-like way with our spouses? I pray for all of us here this morning, if we're married, that we would grow in holiness so that we can love our spouses more. I pray for those who are thinking about marriage, that they would make certain that they're giving you every part of their lives so you can be growing Christ-like qualities in their lives. And we pray this now in the name of Christ. Amen.